Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, I'd like to talk about two um, separate events that took place this week, uh, one that affected very much the coalition and one affected the opposition, a little bit about the ramifications of both episodes um, and what this means going forward. I'll start with the first one. Uh, which involved uh, Minister of Intelligence, Elazar Stern. Um, I should start by saying with full disclosure that I've been working with uh, Intelligence Minister Stern. Um, so just, I'll be able to give you a little bit more of the, uh, the background to the events. Um, but basically, uh, you know, for, for most Jews in the diaspora, people follow Israel, you know, what goes on in Israel outside, everyone will be familiar with the Jewish Agency for Israel. It's quite remarkable how many few people in Israel uh, are aware of the Jewish Agency's existence, or at least aware of its existence, but not really what it does. But uh, so uh, for many years, the race for the leadership of the part uh, of the Jewish Agency, which is probably the most powerful uh, Jewish organization in the world, um, is one that most Israelis don't take an interest in. It's been almost every single Jewish agency is one that was uh, you know, chosen, or the candidate of the government was the one that was chosen. Last time around, um, now President Herzog uh, received the position, even though ostensibly uh, and openly, publicly, I should say, Prime Minister Netanyahu backed uh, someone else, Yuval Steinitz, a minister at the time. But uh, behind uh, closed doors, he actually did prefer Herzog. And, Putting up Steinitz was just a sort of uh, a smoke uh, cover, basically, so he could get something else. But almost uh, always, it's the government's choice uh, which gets chosen. And Elazar Stern of the Ishatida party was uh, this government's choice. It was agreed between uh, Foreign Minister and alternate Prime Minister uh, Yael Lapid and Prime Minister uh, Naftali Bennett. And most of the government supported Stern's candidacy, and he was certainly the front runner. This week, um, we basically have a new Shin Bet, head of Shin Bet. Up until this week, we didn't know his name. He was just known in Israel whenever they don't want to give a name because of security reasons or legal reasons. They give their first uh, letter of their first name or last name. So he was known as Resh. Um, and basically, there was an appointments committee um, uh, which went into his background to see if there was any impediment to his position. And he had a clean record five minutes before uh, the investigation was closed. Uh, someone made an anonymous complaint. It, it, uh, it was a, a complaint that had been brought up in 2018. And it was looked into then, it was looked into again, and there was absolutely nothing behind it. And as our Stern, as intelligence minister who was on uh, the investigation panel centrally involved in, uh, in the appointment, uh, decided to go on radio to explain that the 
the uh, anonymous complaint has now been uh, is now wielded as a political or personal tool by so many to try and prevent appointments. And speaking to a lot of politicians this week, they uh, they say that a lot of people don't want to get into uh, certain positions because of this anonymous. Uh, complaints procedure where anyone could just make up anything and it can tarnish your uh, your reputation and that will be the end of it even if there's no foundation. Uh, unfortunately Minister Stern went a little bit further and said during his time as head of IDF manpower uh, directorate he shredded many anonymous uh, complaints. The interviewer uh, mischaracterized it let's say to a certain extent um, that he was referring to sexual harassment complaints which uh, he never characterized them uh, during the interview in that way, but it was a sort of he, he, shed, he said, he said uh, sort of um, moment. But uh, the media jumped on it and said that uh, Minister Stern obviously didn't take sexual harassment uh, complaints seriously. And it became a bit of a circus. And yesterday, uh, Minister S uh, Stern decided to uh, resign from uh, uh, as being a candidate for the next uh, head of the Jewish agency. Um, there was a few other people, there's nine other people uh, uh, still uh, possibly in the running, but uh, as I said, it's almost always the, the Prime Minister's pick, so Lapid and Bennett have gone away to try and choose to think who else they can have, because obviously they want someone they can work with, the Jewish agency's budget is at least half given through the Israeli government, and it's a very important position which needs to coordinate uh, with the government, so they want to ensure that uh, you know, some, whoever gets it is someone who's close to them. Almost all of the other candidates, or at least a large amount of them, are associated with uh, opposition. Like, for example, which we'll talk about in a second, one of the leading candidates is Irina Nevzilin, who is Yuli Edelstein's wife. Uh, Danny Danon, who was uh, formerly consul, uh, no, he was ambassador to the UN, uh, is, a for, is a member of Likud. Uh, so they want to have their own. One name that seems to now have got quite a lot of attention is former Foreign Minister Tsipi Livni. Uh, uh, Lapid asked the Appointments Committee to put it off for a month so he could search uh, for an alternative, uh, but they've now given him until Sunday midday uh, to choose an alternative candidate or they'll have to choose one of the nine candidates. And as I said, probably none of them are considered close enough to Lapid and Bennett at this point. So there's a bit of a setback uh, uh, for the government uh, this week in that because the Jewish Agency is an important organization and it was supposed to be a government picked and it was supposed to be Minister Stern. Now they have to go back to the drawing board. Possible ramifications, as we've talked before, uh, are Yisrael Beitenu, uh, minister now, minister without portfolio, Eli Avidar, those of you who remember, Elia Vidar was a sort of rogue Yisrael Beitenu member when he didn't receive a ministerial portfolio he wanted. Avito Liebman, a finance minister and head of the party, offered him to be a minister in the, in the uh, finance ministry, basically something like a deputy. And he said that wasn't important enough for him or he you know, would just be basically taking orders from uh, Lieberman. So he didn't take it. Hamad Aman, other member of the party, did take the portfolio. And for a while, uh, Avidar sort of sulked on the sidelines. Um, but, uh, you know, because of the numbers, because he was the 61st uh, MK and that you need 61 to pass any laws, uh, um, there was basically a deal worked out where he would become minister without portfolio uh, in the prime minister's office. And then he would get intelligence minister 
when uh, Stern would move uh, to the Jewish agency. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened. Elia Vidal has reportedly come out and said, well, I need another solution because minister without portfolio, without any sort of uh, role, is obviously nothing, uh, not something that he uh, requires. And don't forget, if he will only resign his position under the Norwegian law uh, in the Knesset once he receives the ministry he wants, and then there'd be someone, the next person on the list, Yisrael Beitene, who would be far, be far less trouble. Uh, so that is a relatively minor issue that they do need to work out, but it is something that needs to be worked out because every single member of Knesset is crucial uh, for the upcoming budget uh, vote. On the other side of the aisle, uh, Likud were um, thrown into a bit of disarray. Um, what was it uh, last, yesterday or the day before when Yuli Edelstein, um, a former speaker of the Knesset, former minister, uh, basically said that he wants to depose uh, a current opposition and former prime minister Netanyahu from the Likud. Um, he went further than everyone else. There's a, there's a lot of other people throwing the hat in the ring and said next time it comes around or after Netanyahu, kind of, uh, you know, stepping shortly, challenging Netanyahu, like Nia Barkat, Yisrael Katz, uh, and some others. Uh, Yuri Edelstein went further and said that Netanyahu has failed. He's failed repeatedly on four different occasions to form a government, uh, which shows that... Uh, you know, Likud will just stay in the opposition for a long time. Um, and he is the only one who can make a coalition of the right uh, with the numbers that he would receive and the partners who would feel more comfortable with him as leader uh, rather than Netanyahu. We had a poll this week, which to a certain extent borne that out. Um, Netanyahu is still by far the most popular uh, uh, leader of Likud. In fact, there was a there was a poll which showed he had 86% support over um, uh, Edelstein's. I think he didn't even, I think he was in single digits. But again, the, perhaps, and this is Edelstein's case, the more interesting thing is while they could would get 34 under Netanyahu, they would get 20 something, low 20s under Edelstein. But if Edelstein was the leader of the party, many of the other right wing parties would be able to perhaps be more comfortable and come over to the other side of the aisle. And there would be, again, in, in the future, some right or right of center government, which at the moment can't be uh, compiled with Netanyahu at the helm, because with Netanyahu's 34, uh, his block still only reaches six, uh, which is five seats uh, short of the majority. So there is something to uh, Edelstein's claims. Uh, some say connected with the first story, that Edelstein came out this week to try and raise the profile of his wife, as we talked about, Irina Nebzalin, a candidate for the Jewish agency. I'm not sure that that would really help her um, because there's a whole political angle to this with Irina Nebzalin's father, who's a vocal and known opponent of Vladimir Putin, and uh, Russians certainly would be happy to see uh, anyone with that name in a leadership position in Israel. Um, but uh, it certainly has put the Likud in quite a, a bind. And a lot of people, a lot of Likud uh, members of Knesset went on some defending Netanyahu, very few defending uh, Edelstein. But you could hear in some of the interviews they gave, they were still not uh, overly critical of Edelstein. A lot of uh, people in Likud are fed up with Netanyahu. They have been for a long while. They don't see him as potentially uh, teetering at this point, largely because the budget hasn't passed, but 
for many other reasons, but certainly they would like to see him go. Uh, but the most important voice this week was Chaim Katz, who runs the uh, central executive of the Likud party, which decides when primaries will take place. And he came out and said loud and clear, as far as his statement goes, that there will not be primaries in the Likud until the, the Knesset, uh, uh, basically until elections are called. So that gives Netanyahu quite a lot of breathing room, but I would say for now. What it does show is that more and more high-level people in the Likud are prepared to openly challenge. I think this is causing a lot of disquiet in the Likud. Yuli Edelstein is a popular uh, person in uh, the Likud list and among certain people. Still, he's not close to the popularity at large with Likud voters as Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu is, but he's certainly the highest level person to openly challenge Netanyahu, call him a failure and say it's time for him to step aside. Perhaps related to this, the opposition has been in a bit of a disarray. Today, there were a number of votes. The opposition didn't even get close to the coalition on any of its votes. Uh, the coalition pretty much passed what it wanted to. And the coalition, uh, the opposition tried to bring up some laws and wasn't able to. Even on some of the laws, interestingly enough, there was a, a return to Sharon Cheskel, a former Likud, now with uh, Gidon Saar's um, uh, New Hope Party, who wanted to pass a law legalizing cannabis, uh, sort of come down a rung, and basically for medical purposes to try and satisfy the Islamist party, Ram, which uh, is against cannabis on religious grounds. In the end, as I said, they came up with a compromise of legalizing it for, uh, for uh, medical reasons at this point. Uh, they got the okay from the Sharia Council, the religious uh, body, uh, which sort of stands above the politicians. Um, but they have said that uh, on, the other, on the next votes in the Knesset, there'll have to be significant changes. But interestingly enough, uh, there were quite a few Likud people, David Bittan, one of them who was shouting at his own members for abs abstaining or not even turning up to the vote. If the uh, opposition is going to be a fighting opposition, it needs every single member to turn up to every single vote. And we clearly did not see that today. Whether it was because specifically about this law, something which has been championed in the past uh, by Likud, or whether it was this disarray in the Likud, which is feeding into this uneasiness of the opposition, uh, that remains to be seen. But certainly something is not functioning in the opposition. They have lost, to a certain extent, a bit of its fight uh, that they had before the, uh, the recess. Um, maybe they realize that the budget is passing, so they've kind of given up a little bit, uh, maybe because of the infighting of the, in the Likud, which is causing disquiet. All we know is uh, at the moment the government has, even though it has also its own uh, problems within it, at the moment it's having pretty much a free reign in the Knesset. And with that, I'm happy to uh, open it up for any questions on these or any other issues. All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have in is, uh, Lapid goes to the US and Bennett to Putin. Uh, Lapid is okay with a two-state solution. Is Bennett? No, uh, he said that openly. Uh, he's against the Palestinian state, he's against a two-state solution. Uh, at the moment, even Lapid is being cautious. Lapid is not against a two-state solution. Uh, but certainly it's not, not high on his agenda. And he said openly that he doesn't believe that there's a Palestinian leadership that is willing or able at this point. So while it will have been on the, uh, you know, on the list of subjects uh, in his meetings, especially with Secretary of State Blinken and others, 
Um, it's certainly not at the top of the Israeli agenda, this government agenda, obviously, apart from certain parties. Um, so they're, they're sort of on safe ground. That issue doesn't need to be raised because um, even though there are differences between those two and between even, even greater differences in the, in the government than those two, uh, it doesn't really have to be dealt with at the moment because it's not high on the agenda and because uh, perhaps because of Mahmoud Abbas's rejectionism, which is you know, long-standing and, and well-known, and the international community, at least parts of it, have, have come to understand uh, that they can't really move forward too much with, uh, uh, with the, on the Palestinian issue while Mahmoud Abbas uh, is in office. So it's not a great problem at this point, and certainly for, from Israel's point of view, Iran is the number one agenda when they travel to uh, Sochi, which hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen next week uh, for Bennett to meet with Putin and when Lapid uh, travels to the US. Uh, that may have just been my internet, but I think we lost you for a minute there. Okay. okay. Um, so Carrie Hillebrand asks, will Israel's request for US funding to replenish Iron Dome pass Congress? Uh, well, it already has passed Congress. It's now being held up in the Senate. Uh, they did try and rush it through the Senate, uh, I believe it was last week or the week before. Um, but uh, I can't remember his name, Rand Paul, I believe, uh, was the one who blocked. I think you have to have, a, uh, the best of my knowledge, uh, you have to have a unanimous uh, decision by all 100 senators to rush certain laws through. And Rand Paul put up an objection, so it couldn't be rushed through. So. Uh, but I'm sure it will come up, and the fact that almost every senator voted, apart from Rand Paul, maybe one or two others, for it to be rushed through shows that there is uh, strong support for it. So I have little doubt that it will pass through uh, as soon as it's able. I don't know the exact uh, American government system exactly when it will come up after something's been passed in the Congress, um, but it does seem that it's almost wall-to-wall support uh, for Iron funding uh, in both houses. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, Eric Selkov asks, any insight into the Blinken meetings in Israel? Um, well, I mean, again, the, the interesting thing was what was said about Iran, because again, Israel, from, from the Israel Israeli side, that's the only really thing of great interest at this point. Obviously, there's a lot uh, of discussion, there's a lot to talk about partnerships, there's a lot to talk about uh, cooperation. And even today, uh, I believe that the Emirati uh, foreign minister also, uh, also sat in on a trilateral meeting. Uh, but what came out about Iran was certainly uh, where most uh, Israeli uh, official ears will be. And he basically said that the, um, the JCPOA, that the chances and the time uh, for there to be a return to the JCPOA is running out. I think he used uh, the analogy of the runway is shortening. Uh, because Iran is just racing forward uh, with, um, with its uh, nuclear program. Um, and I think there's, 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 you know, many in the West, not just in, uh, in the US, are, are getting fed up with uh, Iran's position, trying to evade talks while really racing ahead on enriching uh, uranium. And uh, we'll see what happens, but certainly there seems to be in losing of patience, or at least that's what they want to project. 
uh, on the American side, and that will certainly be music to Israel's ears, but there's still a, quite a lot of uh, skepticism in Israel. Um, exactly, you know, if there's going to be a return to the JCPOA, exactly how that will look, whether it will be stronger and longer, as many would like to see at the very least. Um, but certainly at the moment, it's Iran's uh, sort of, you know, basically delaying tactics, which is uh, running the clock at this point. Thank you. From Len, will U.S. tourists be allowed in, into Israel in November? It seems possibly not. If you have a first degree relative, you can come in, and that's been true for a while, as long as you're vaccinated or recovered. Uh, as of November, it seems that like they're going to do a pilot, I believe, with around 40 countries. But these will be 40 countries that Israel has signed an agreement to recognize a mutual uh, bilateral recognition of each other's vaccination certificates. The US, the UK, and I believe Canada um, are not countries that have uh, recognized or not been recognized by Israel. So it seems at the moment, uh, again, this is all reports because nothing, there have been uh, suggestions and talks and recommendations, but at the moment, no official policies out there. Um, but at the moment, uh, it could be a big problem. Also, uh, a big problem is at the moment, Israel is saying that uh, only people who have been vaccinated had one of their last shot within this uh, last six months. And don't forget, Israel is the only country which is giving a booster to any age. I believe there's, you know, in, in the UK and maybe other places, they're only giving a booster to far much elderly people, which obviously anyone younger than that will have not received a booster shot and maybe well over the, that six months, um, you know, minimum uh, or maximum uh, since your last shot. So at the moment, it seems like the first uh, uh, sort of bunch of countries that were allowed, uh, allow Israel will allow tourists to come in, uh, does not involve the US at this point. But again, nothing's been put out. There is a lot of lobbying going on. There's a lot of discussions in the Knesset and in the government trying to ensure as much to, as many tourists are allowed to come with uh, all the safety uh, measures put in place to ensure that uh, another variant doesn't enter into the country because uh, as was just said by a high ranking uh, Israeli health official, we pretty much uh, dealt with the Delta, the numbers are going down, the uh, situation is improving, and the last thing Israel needs, or any country needs, is a new variant coming in. And sticking with COVID for a minute, Haya Gill asks, are there any COVID-19 restrictions for Israeli citizens currently? Yes. Um, first of all, you still have to wear masks indoors. Um, Events are still limited. I can't remember the numbers, but uh, they're still limited. But uh, sporting and musical events are open. You do need a green pass, which means you need to have had uh, a, a booster shot uh, to keep hold of your green pass, because there are people who had two shots uh, over six months ago. And if they didn't have their booster, they've lost their green pass. If you don't have a green pass, you can't sit inside restaurants. One of the relaxations is that you can now sit outside a, rest a restaurant if you don't have a green pass, which wasn't true up until recently. But you can't go to an event, you can't go to official buildings, you can't do many, many things without a green pass. Uh, it's to encourage the third booster shot. Um, so those are the major restrictions. Obviously, as we spoke about before, traveling uh, inside and even leaving Israel, there's still restrictions. Um, but those are the major restrictions at the moment. But uh, there probably will be a loosening of those 
uh, in the weeks ahead because the numbers are going down quite drastically. Thank you. An anonymous viewer asks, who are the likely replacements for Abu Mazen? That's, that's, the, that's the big question everybody is asking, exactly what's going to come after Abu Mazen. Rather than individuals, the big question is if it's going to be someone more extreme or someone more moderate. Uh, there is a feeling that there'll be someone more extreme. There are those who are pushing to get as much time with Abu Mazen because while he has no seemingly no great interest to get back to talks, at least fair talks, uh, you know, that, that can really entice uh, Israel to the table. Um, there, are, there are some who, who, who say that at least he doesn't openly advocate violence. And he is someone that can be worked with on security levels, on other levels. Um, that is an opinion, I would say, relatively widely held in the security and intelligence levels. Uh, they are worried about what comes after because it does seem that uh, Hamas are, are growing in popularity, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank. It's unlikely at this point that someone more moderate, at least openly, than Abu Mazen will take over. Um, but, but, you know, you probably have to speak to a Palestinian affairs expert uh, to give, you know, a, a real appraisal of some names. I mean, Marwan Barghouti has always been brought up, but, uh, you know, he, he still sits in Israeli uh, prison. So that will obviously be a major uh, impediment to him becoming uh, president of the Palestinian Authority. But from all polls that I've read, he still remains one of, if not the most popular figure uh, in in the Palestinian society today. Thanks so much for that. And you mentioned these anonymous, the anonymous complaints procedure. Is there any talks of reassessing that? Uh, it, that's, that's a pretty major claim saying that it can tarnish the reputation by the false claims or unfounded claims. Is there anything going on with that? Well, certainly in theory, this is this should be what we were talking about this week, but because of the, you know, the, the mischaracterization or the misspeaking of Elazar Stern, it became more about Elazar Stern rather than the issue, which is what he wanted to raise, something which he saw, as I said, in his decades <clears throat> in senior positions in the IDF. Um, speaking to a lot of officials uh, at highest levels, politics, diplomacy, academia, many have said, many said to me, this is something that Israel has to deal with because it is pushing a lot of people out, a, a lot of good people out who have clean records, but you know, just an anonymous complaint can tarnish their record. Um, even this week on, on, on uh, Elisar Stern, and he came out with these comments, the media was looking and looking and looking to find anyone who could say that uh, he didn't take a complaint seriously. And they found these anonymous uh, people from 25 years ago, no names, no details, but it basically spread this belief that Elisar Stern didn't listen to uh, sexual harassment complaints while he was uh, in charge, even though he was never really in charge of dealing with it for much of his career. And some of these complaints came from that part. So it obviously, you know, there was certainly a certain amount of doubt on some of these um, uh, complaints. Um, but unfortunately, the issue did get put into the background a little bit. It is something that a lot of people are worried about, but you still have to balance that with the fact that there are women who are harassed, who are scared to come forward with their name. They are scared for personal ramifications. You know, that happens not just here, but in the US when someone is harassed by someone senior to them. Uh, sometimes they feel their only 
way of grievance is to an anonymous complaint. So it's very difficult. You have to balance both sides. You have to balance the needs to listen to uh, victims of harassment, sexual or, or not, uh, but also ensure that people are not using this as a political or personal tool to wield against uh, potential competitors. Um, I'm not sure how you do that. I'm not sure how you do that in any system. Uh, I'm sure it's something that needs to be worked out, not just in Israel, uh, but around the world. But uh, um, as I said, it, it kind of got, a, the issue got a little bit lost in the scandal. Understood, thank you. And Robert Larrick asks, would Israel want a more regional approach to restoring order? Uh, according to some, artic some articles, uh, such as Kissinger touched upon uh, versus walking away from hard choices. I don't really understand the question, but they prefer greater order in the Middle East. A more regional approach to restoring order? order? Or do we within Israel or with the Palestinians? Mm, there's a follow-up question sure. from him. Uh, recognizing <laughs> Iran and Hezbollah as well as Hamas's terrorist forces, uh, that would be emboldened and expanded all over the place in the UN security geopolitics should see as nuclear terrorist threat to them. Uh, don't they need to support Israel for stability? Well, I think there, I mean, that, that's what probably is a large part of what led to the Abraham Accords and even what's gone on below the level of the Abraham Accords, some of the countries which didn't openly join, but still Israel has good uh, behind the scenes uh, relationships with obviously Saudi Arabia being the most prominent. Uh, so we're already moving to that. Um, there is a greater understanding. I was actually uh, speaking to a prominent Bahraini this week, um, and we were speaking uh, precisely about that, how there needs to be even a greater regional approach, because today, you know, the, the dividing line in the Middle East is not Israelis against Arabs, even if, you know, one could argue that was never really the dividing line, but that was the perceived uh, dividing line. Today, it's really sort of pragmatists or moderates or whatever you want to see, mostly from the Sunni world against the extremism uh, of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, you know, the leader of the Shiite world. Not to say there are many Shiites, by the way, who are against Iran, as we know in Azerbaijan. And interestingly, the Bahraini was, uh, was telling me about the situation in Bahrain, where they're no longer a majority of the Shiites, they're a minority, but they are still very much listening to what happens in Iran, still follow and are influenced by Iran. Um, so their tentacles are everywhere Iran. It's in you know, what's going on in Yemen, what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Lebanon, what's going on in Iraq. Uh, so most of these moderate prag uh, pragmatic uh, Sunni countries are certainly understanding that they have a common enemy here uh, with Israel uh, and that Israel can provide them a lot, whether it's intelligence or some sort of security umbrella or joint security umbrella but even a lot of cooperation on so many other levels, economic uh, and others. Um, so, you know, we're seeing almost every single week now an Israeli traveling to the Gulf, uh, someone from the Gulf traveling to Israel, and it's now becoming the, the new normal. Uh, one could never imagine these things happening uh, two years ago. And even this Bahraini visitor, there was a whole delegation, they said they're pinching themselves, you know, that they're here in the Jewish state, uh, in the state of Israel, they said that uh, everyone told them before that it's a beautiful country with not particularly nice people. And they said they came and they said it's a beautiful country with beautiful people. And I think the more Bahrainis, Emiratis, 
and others who come to Israel, they'll, they'll see Israel for themselves. And I think that's a, that's a real way forward uh, uh, to peace. So uh, we're already there. Well, so let's say we're already starting and it's only been a year, but there's been so much achieved. And the regional approach is certainly one that the Israelis would like to see more of. And some of our new friends uh, in the Middle East uh, uh, certainly join in that. And even the Americans this week, uh, for the first time, I would say, really spoke very encouragingly about uh, strengthening these ties and perhaps even adding to them, uh, which we haven't seen since the Biden administration came in. But there's certainly more positive uh, comments, strategy towards a greater engagement between Israel and the Arab world. And uh, as the uh, question asked, uh, a more regional approach to the region and to stability. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers, please join us Friday for Winfield Myers interviewing Dario Fernandez Moreira on his book, The Myth of the Andalusian Paradise. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.